politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. You might be regarded as subjects to our government, but to us, you are patriots here at Blaze Media. Daniel Horowitz back in the house Friday, September 4th. And boy, do I need a Friday. Um, everyone in my family is just telling me to to chill out. They're worried about my health. Um, I told you guys how I had to pull my two kids out of private school because they have the child abuse, face diaper, burqa mandate. Imagine that, a kid being forced to wear that all day long. They Actually, I found out they have plexiglass all over the place too, so they have both. Um, literally like bubble boys. No one has ever studied that psychological damage. On the other hand, I had a kid in preschool. We figured, okay, so you know he's safe to keep there. Then we find out the first day of school, they creepingly, surreptitiously brought in the mandate to preschool as well. Five-year-old children. Lord have mercy. But we now have sick, sick, demented human beings like Governor Lockdown Larry Hogan who believes in essentially criminalizing the free breathing of air of a five-year-old, okay? We have stories, obviously, of people like that New Jersey gym owner. They're downright arrested. Just a step behind what's going on in Australia. But as I've noted from day one, one of the most sick, egregious juxtapositions in the history of public policy that has been taking place since March is that at the same time, They use this virus, misuse and abuse, lie about the data as a pretext to criminalize basic walking in locomotion, basic inaction of a human being. Peaceful, law-abiding Americans. They are using that same virus as a pretext to release violent criminals, the most violent criminals, irrespective of their prior records. Same thing, two sides of a coin. The anarchy and the tyranny all at once, anarcho-tyranny. So we're kind of like China. We are like China, but only the worst elements of China. At least in China, they don't tolerate violent crime. And this has been going on, and very few Republicans have even been talking about this, even conservatives. From what I can see, over 100,000 criminals have been released from jail and prison nationwide, but that doesn't even scrape the surface because remember, those are the people that they downright retroactively released. There are countless numbers that are likely much higher of people that are currently committing violence, and there's more of them, certainly with the rioting, both during the rioting, outside of the concept, context of the writing, that they are never initially being jailed or even prosecuted because, in part, because of the coronavirus jailbreak. And then, of course, as we've noted, this violence that is boiling over, yes, it's about BLM and Antifa, organized terrorism, the agenda behind it, but it's also being fueled by the jailbreak that took place a few months earlier, but also by the jailbreak that has been taking place to varying degrees, depending on the state for the last five to 10 years that we've been covering here, but really intensifying 
over the last two years. You know, we are now at the point where the more jailbreak we have, the more they complain too many people are in jail. You, you'll hear the common trope about, oh, there's too many African-Americans locked up in, in, in jail and prison. And, and we've gone over this many times, how really compared to the violent crime rate, uh, they have an under-incarceration problem. And when I say they, I mean black criminals, which are a minority of blacks. And again, who pays the piper? Black victims of crime, among others. But guess what? According to Bureau of Justice Statistics, as of 2018, so this is before the real capstone of jailbreak. It was in earnest. It was going on for a couple of years. Already in 2018, the jail incarceration rate for blacks in America, I'm sorry, the imprisonment rate was the lowest since 1989. So you can imagine what those numbers are two years later, given what has happened since then. Okay? So these are numbers you're not going to hear elsewhere. But these aren't just numbers. There are lives lost based on that. We talk a lot about excess deaths from COVID, not COVID, lockdowns, suicides, drug overdoses, economic despair. What about the excess deaths from jailbreak? See, we never trace the recidivism. We never trace what happens with these people when they let them go. Is there any effort to reincarcerate them? These are all the issues for which we have so few people on our side willing to even discuss and broach. Oh, I hear from some of my colleagues, oh, Daniel, we're locking up too many people for BS, low-level, nonviolent crimes. Dude, that ship has sailed. We never really did anyway. To the extent, even if you believe in the early 2000s, we're locking up a lot of people, that was reversed. That pendulum has been reversed long ago. You have in New York, there's this guy that killed two moms in the 70s because he hated women. He was granted parole. I mean, this is happening all the time now. There's no nuance about, oh, well, they're drug traffickers, but really they're doing other things too, which is true. No, straight up people who are uh, convicted for murder are being released in many, many different ways. Oh, well, it's enough time. They're a certain age. Um, and, and this is just growing and growing. This is the other epidemic that we're not talking about. It's an epidemic for which there is no immunity. There's no T-cell, B-cell, partial immunity. For most Americans, depending on where you live, you're more likely to be assaulted or killed by someone jailbreaked than die from coronavirus. And again, the sick, twisted irony is more of them are being released precisely because of the virus. It's all in the science. Well, with us today is a friend of mine, one of the few people that actually digs deep on policy that is not weakened by this crisis of intellect and crisis of morality in this broken movement that is actually the same man he was when he started in public policy, committed to what he does, without changing with the times. I call it trans-conservatism. Sean Kennedy wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal a couple weeks ago with a very bold headline, noting that, in fact, people are more likely to die of coronavirus outside of jail 
or prison than inside of it. So the entire pretext for their release, even if you would believe they deserve it, is bogus. So with us today is Sean himself. Sean is a fellow at the Maryland Public Policy Institute, close to where I live. He studies crime, among other issues. He has a lot of articles on crime published in the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, other publications. He also was a congressional staffer for many years, testifies um, in front of state legislators on uh, several issues, certainly including crime. He was in a, an advisor to Newt Gingrich for many years. So you can imagine he's very plugged in to policy ideas, which is really what we need. With no further ado, it's certainly an honor to introduce Sean to you guys for the first time. Hey, Sean, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Sure. Well, thanks for listening to the monologue. I really wanted you to hear the framing of this because it's a very vast issue, an issue we're not going to fully get into um, just in the time today, and we'll have to do this in installments over time. But I really wanted my audience to be familiar with you and your work because there are so few people who do this. Let's start with the more immediate jailbreak and kind of peel back to the broader reversal of the generational gains against violent crime. So the last I've seen, roughly 100,000 criminals have been released. God knows how many I've seen that were never even locked up. We had a guy here close to Baltimore who was arrested on terrible sex crimes, but he was released because they were like, well, I don't really, the judge felt he didn't really pose a threat of, of being a flight risk for whatever reason. And given coronavirus, he wasn't even locked up initially. Other people aren't even being charged with crimes if they feel it's so-called low level. You're saying that this is a major threat to the country and the entire premise that somehow they have a higher death rate in prison is not even true. Could you unpack the coronavirus jailbreak issue and where things stand, where they're headed? Well, thank you, Daniel. The, the, the way to think about this is who is asking for the freedom of these individuals? The answer is many of these criminal justice reform groups, including the ACLU, which has been the tip of the spear, filing lawsuit after lawsuit against state prisons, the federal government, even ICE detention centers to compel the release based on no data at all other than their claim that it'll spread like wildfire in prisons. And what the ACLU and a number of these other groups did, and this is back in 2015, with grants from a lot of these left-wing organizations, including Open Society, was they announced their plan to affect a 50% reduction in total prison population. And, you know, as, as Rahm Emanuel famously said, never let a good crisis go to waste, they jumped on this opportunity as early as March before a single lockdown came in. The ACLU sent out press releases and started filing lawsuits compelling the release of individuals. Today, we think there's 100,000 people, as you said, who have been actively released. They were in custody and then freed under the pretext of this. But for example, in California, they issued what's called a zero bail edict, which with the exception of a few limited violent crimes, and we'll talk about what violent crimes consist of under the legal definition versus what the public's understanding of violent is, um, you cannot be incarcerated or even arrested in California. You were instead cited. There's a number of really egregious incidents. One was the parolee under a felony assault with a deadly weapon, which means he shot someone. He was released after committing a series of commercial burglaries and arrested once in the morning, cited with a ticket, 
and then caught again doing the same thing in the afternoon and again sided with the ticket, even though he was on a serious violent felony parole violation. Uh, that's what we're dealing with here. And there's, there's, there's a plethora of examples across the country where this is happening. So there may be hundreds of thousands of people who were never even taken in mm. because of these zero bail or similar edicts. We see, uh, obviously, you use Baltimore as the example. Marilyn Mosby, the DA there, has basically issued the idea that anyone who's nonviolent or not a direct, what she considers a threat to the public, is not going to be processed. And she told the police not to do that. And we now have data that the police are taking that cue. And I'll talk about the NYPD data that we're getting right now about arrest uh, and what's going on in New York in a minute. But that whole story has resulted in a number of serious crimes. I have a list of six egregious murders that have happened across the country. One incident in Tampa right after the initial jail releases, a known member of the Bloods was in on a drug charge, was released the next day, it was released uh, the, the one day, interviewed by the local media, and he said, it's such a blessing to be free. It's such a blessing to be free. The next day, he murdered someone at a gas station while he, as he used the phrase, he was out gangbanging. Uh, we have other murders of, of children. Single mother of two was killed in an alley by a prison inmate released early. Uh, there's so many egregious cases of not just these. But what's so sad, to your point, is we don't even know how bad it is. And we're, we have to use anecdote because yep. no one is tracking this. In the case of the Tampa murder, which is so strange, is the police knew exactly who committed the murder. They just couldn't catch him. Did they announce he was a jailbreak releasee? No. They only did that upon his arrest a month later because they didn't want to admit the fact that they made a huge error. And there are so many instances of this across the country. And it's not just people who go on to commit other crimes, though they may well do so. Some of these people just deserve to be in prison for the rest of their lives. Just this last month in California, a woman named Tariba Williams was released. In 1998, she got shot a man, gut shot a man uh, during a carjacking and pushed him into the back seat and drove him hundreds of miles across the street estate and left him to die in a cheap motel. And she received a life prison sentence and she was released by Governor Gavin Newsom. In addition to dozens of other murderers who've been released in California, 64 murderers, at least we know about in Illinois, there are likely hundreds of people who've committed serious violent crimes. And that was the crime of their conviction, not just a prior oh, yeah. crime. And that is the biggest challenge. We saw in Louisiana a couple of years ago with their criminal justice reform, they were releasing people who had been convicted immediately of drug offenses or other nonviolent crimes. But in fact, they had priors that were violent, and then they went on to commit violent offenses. And people were like, no, these were not non <laughs> low risk, nonviolent criminals. And it's like, you didn't bother to look that he committed an armed robbery prior to his drug charge, let alone the fact that a number of these individuals have been either accused in serious violent crimes or convicted in a different jurisdiction. Speaking of a not related to COVID, but last year, an individual named Joel Francisco was released under the First Step Act because he was a uh, cocaine trafficker. But he was also the leader of the Latin Kings gang in Rhode Island. And in 1998, prior to his conviction in 2005 for the drug trafficking, he tried to execute a man point blank on the streets of Providence. Yep. For whatever reason, the gun just didn't go off. Yeah. Well, no, the gun went off. It just it, it just grazed the guy or, or shot him in the uh -huh, head. Okay. But they, they, he pled no contest, got a few years uh, for the offense, 
and then was caught by uh, federal agents for the drug trafficking charge, they had a panoply of charges to throw at him. But if anyone knows anything about prosecution, you get them where they are. And they got him on the drug trafficking charge saying he'll be away for 40 years. That'll be the end of his criminal career. And then the First Step Act comes along and it says, well, that offense, you know, that's a minor offense, even though they could have thrown the book at him on other charges. But now those charges have hit the statute of limitations and they're out the door. So what does he do? He goes on and stabs and murders a man in a bar in Rhode Island within months of his release after, ironically, breaking into his girlfriend's house and trying to kill her weeks before that and not being arrested and not being taken or being arrested, but not being uh, charged and convicted of that crime. Yeah. But then he murders someone a couple of weeks later. Uh, so we're, we're sort of at this impasse where people basically don't want to accept that some of these individuals are very dangerous and that for, for want of them getting the flu, we, uh, we are going to release them into the general public. And what adds to that, Daniel, which is so interesting, is there is now a lot of information, and a lot of it, ironically, is done by liberal and, and pro-release researchers. There's a study out of Harvard in uh, about Cook County, Chicago, and they found that 15 to 16% of all the Chicago coronavirus cases in April of 2020 were directly linked to March releases from Cook County Jail, which 90% wow. of those were a product of uh, basically jailbreak. They were, they were reducing the population because there was an outbreak at Cook County Jail. So they released people and those people then went on to spread COVID throughout Chicago and the state of Illinois. So <laughs> there's both a public safety component of this. There's also a public health component of this because we have known incidences in a number of states, California, Oregon, and Virginia, where they're actively re release, releasing people with COVID. They're, they have uh, infectious disease and they know it and they say, oh, well, you can go free now. We don't want you to get yeah. sicker. I don't know what, what exactly the, the rationale is, but um, yep. instead of isolating them, they free them into the public. And, so they and, can and, and Sean, isn't it true that they're continuing to do this, even though everyone agrees from a viral standpoint prisons were a front-loaded problem. It was the earliest problem because it, once it's in there, it's going to spread. No one disagrees with that. What we disagree with is that largely a younger population, um, you know, there's very few deaths relative to the number of people who get it. And when you look at the few people that wind up dying, they're the ones that would die anyway outside of the prison. So by now, you're not seeing any news about it because they all have immunity. And in fact, a large portion of the country seems to have pretty strong de facto immunity just everywhere. It's run its course in most places. Certainly the jails, this has been over for quite a while. But isn't it true that it's still going on? Like, I don't know if the numbers have gone up over 100,000, but it appears to me that A, it's still going on, and B, coincidentally, there doesn't appear to be any effort, any plan to reincarcerate them. You see, if this was about the virus, we're like, oh, no, it's about the virus. We just, okay, now it's over. We'll put them back in. But as you noted, this had nothing to do with that. This is what they always wanted to do, and this was the perfect opportunity. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I'm going to defer to you on the epidemiology of whether or not it's still spreading. We know for a fact that since I wrote that article in July, that uh, in the six weeks since then, We've seen about 200 more prison and jail deaths of COVID. But as you pointed out, 
These are individuals who are vulnerable, frail, and there is a mechanism, not only how prisons operate through mealtime rotation, lockdowns, isolation, and other mitigation through PPE, which is now widely available. So if there was an excuse early on, there's no excuse anymore. Also, Sean, but, isn't it true that just, just before you go on, isn't I've seen a number of cases where it's not like these guys that I see released are like, man, they have like amputations, like those with uncontrolled diabetes amputations, really um, two of the ice deaths were were people that had amputations. These people don't look that bad off. Like prima facie, I'm not even seeing a claim that they have major comorbidities in all these there, cases. There's, well, we'll talk, I'll talk about comorbidity in a second, but but there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting thing because the initial claim was that these are at risk and low risk offenders in terms of reoffense and, and nonviolent, which that's been belied by the facts. We've seen a number of violent offenders not only been released, but then gone on to commit crimes. I mean, somebody who commits a violent murder by gut shooting a man during a carjacking isn't exactly a nonviolent offender, Governor Gavin Newsom. But one of the interesting things about the morbidity rate is they're testing in prisons at a astronomical rate. They have tested a two to seven times in most states uh, than the national or the state uh, average of, of overall residences. And the result of that, and this is what's interesting, is the number of positive cases in, in the prison population that result in death is one quarter of the number of positive cases that result in death in the general population. It's 0.74% versus 3.5% of people who are positive for COVID in the general population eventually die of COVID or or listed as death of COVID. So we're dealing with that. The other thing that we just saw a study come out the other day that CNN's covering, and I and actually just testified before this group called the Council of Criminal Justice that's doing a commission on uh, COVID, is they adjusted for age, sex, and race and said, oh, look, it's double the rate of the national average when you adjust for age, sex, and race, because of course, there, it's a younger population, a healthier population on average and all these other things. But if you are in prison, especially for a long sentence like murder uh, or you know a serious drug trafficking offense, you're both older and because of your previous criminal lifestyle, you likely have serious comorbidities and pre-existing conditions that they aren't accounting for. The diabetes rate is twice the age-adjusted yep. and race-adjusted average for prisoners than it is for the general population. So take a 65-year-old African-American man and say, what's the odds he has diabetes? It's X. What's the odds a prisoner of the same profile has diabetes? It's twice X. But yep. they don't adjust for that. And they say, oh, well, you know, they're dying at this rate. Well, they also smoke at significantly higher rates. They have drug abuse problems. They have, you know, hypertension. Yep. They have all these things. They don't live healthy lifestyles before they get into prison. And then you expect to act like they're comparable to a triathlete. Uh, especially the people. One of the one of the uh, hot hot spots where um, where a lot of people died uh, and it, it made a lot of news was in San Quentin prison. Well, San Quentin has a death row, and eight out of nine of the deaths that happened in San Quentin in a matter of uh, two weeks were on death row. Well, California hasn't executed a person since the year two thousand, so every single one of those people has been in there for at least twenty years, <laughs> and therefore they're pretty old and likely sick. And so them passing away, you know, tragic or not, that they're individuals slated to die, according to the people of California, they passed away, but they were sick and old. Like you were saying, the likelihood that they were going to die on the outside if they had caught COVID were just the same. But 
on a capacity And believe level, me, and please, believe me to get on death row in California. I mean, dude, like that takes talent. So, you know, yeah, I'm, not gonna, were, they, I'm not going to shed tears. One, one of the individuals who caught COVID who did not die was Scott Peterson, who killed his pregnant wife and dumped <laughs> her in Berkeley, Berkeley Bay. So because he's younger kind of people that are. Yeah, he's younger. and He survived. He's, you know, his mid 50s or whatnot. So um, but those are the kind of people that are on California death row, um, you know, cutting up your pregnant wife and throwing her in the ocean uh, is the whole issue here is we need to come to grips with what the public health risk is. One, as I mentioned, that they're an accelerant to COVID if they do contract it and then are being released without being tested or isolated first. And two, what is their public safety risk? And the one thing I'll say about the public safety risk is people point out, especially the ACLU responded to my op-ed saying there's the early evidence doesn't suggest this. Early evidence, there's very little evidence outside of anecdote because no one's tracking this because no one wants to, just like that sheriff in Tampa, be embarrassed by the fact that yep. their yep. releasee, their charge goes on to commit a violent and terrible act. The only people who have caught on to this are the local news outlets, the little yes. TV stations across the country who, who ask the jailbreak, ask the, ask the sheriff after somebody gets caught for murder or rape or whatnot and says, were they a COVID releasee? And then the guy goes, uh, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you that. I left that out of the press release. You, you know, um, we only knew about Noel Francisco because a really good reporter for the Providence Journal contacted Senator Cotton's office to get comment on they didn't Senator Cotton didn't know about it that he was uh you know a first step jailbreak guy and it was just because of a local report that's all we have or local news the national media will never pick it up no they, they have no interest in breaking the wildfire narrative and the, and the funny thing about the wildfire narrative is not that it's not tragic that some people die maybe unnecessarily in prison of COVID, and even if they're dying at higher rates when adjusted for this or that or whatever, is the numbers are still so small. The ACLU put out a study just about jails saying if we ended all arrests and all intakes, except for what they call serious and violent crimes, which in some states has basically occurred, we would save 12,000 or 23,000 lives, 23,000. Across the population of 2 million inmates currently are held as of January 1st, 2.2 million, I should say, there have been fewer than 1,000 COVID deaths. And as I pointed out, <laughs> so how do you save the lives when, when, yeah, there, there's fewer than 1,000 COVID deaths? And again, a lot so, of those, I'm sure, are inflated the same way we're seeing elsewhere um, to know exactly because they tested positive, but did they really die of it? Some of them clearly did, but you know how many of them did? But then also, I mean, the other thing too is, see- some there's an element of the ACLU that they're actually are right, but they're so right that they're wrong. Meaning it does spread very quickly that by the time we got our bearings, it was over with it spread. It spread in a given area. If anything, all you're going to do is release them out and risk more community spread because they are confined. Think about it, Sean. This is the government's argument with the, um, the, the government sanctioned theft and confiscation of private property that CDC just promulgated. They're actually putting the rule in the federal uh, register today to put a moratorium, vitiate private contracts of lending to say you can't evict someone until, you know, through the rest of the year, which I'm sure will be extended. And they're, they're, well, everyone's like, well, Daniel, what does that have to do with CDC? How do they get involved? Well, they're saying that, um, well, you evict them, 
they're going to be kind of out in the streets. Isn't it true, Sean, that a lot of these people, they A, get better health care um, in prison. They get taken care of whether you let, you know, you think it's adequate or not. A lot of these people you let go, what happens to them in the community? Right. They, well, they, that's the that's that's the compassionate argument that that we also need to make is that these individuals are cared for. I mean, there's NIH study after NIH study, not only showing the pre-existing conditions that we know are disproportionate for inmates coming in, but the huge health benefit of coming into prison. Not only do they get regular medical care, regardless of the argument that it's not as good as, you know, what, uh, you know, gold-plated, you know, healthcare, they're getting it on a regular basis. They're being checked. They're, if they have diabetes, they're getting their diabetes meds. They're getting this, that, that other thing. They're getting three. This is the thing. NIH points this out. They're getting three square meals a day, and they use this this funny phrase to say reduced a- reduced access to cigarettes, alcohol, and drugs. Obviously, because they're still getting into a lot of prisons, but they're they're right on that. If you're a chain smoker, a heavy drinker, and a drug addict, and you go to prison, you can't get that on a regular basis easily. So your health is going to improve. And these individuals, especially with pre-existing conditions, are seriously harming their health on the outside. And one of the things we also saw, which is so fascinating, and again, it's not being talked about, is when they release these people, none of the normal if, if, and, and, and often inadequate reentry programs were even open. So in Baltimore, for example, most of the jobs programs, the Medicaid clinics, the substance abuse clinics were all closed, <laughs> including the parole and probation offices, which I should point out the ACLU claimed we should suspend check-ins. And by default, they did suspend all drug testing and in-person checking. And if you don't have access, which of course is self-reported, to the ability to do a virtual check-in, we'll suspend those as well. So parole and probation just shut down. GPS monitors, who's monitoring the monitors? Um, and all that stuff goes on. Then these individuals are get released without any plan. In Oakland, California, the uh, city councilman said that none of these people had a plan. A California criminal justice reform advocate group said that 75% had nothing given to them on the way out. And we saw instances where diabetics were given no medicine. Other people <laughs> were given no food, no place to live. So these people were sent out. So in Los Angeles, back to the community spread point, they, these people ended up in homeless camps. What did the COVID-positive prisoner do in the homeless camp? He spread it across the homeless camp, and eight people died, all traced back to him because he was in the homeless camp because he had nowhere to go. Because prison is the ultimate quarantine. I mean, whether you like it or not, and you're like, well, what about within the prison? But generally speaking, that ship sails one, by the time you detect it because the RO ratio um, – you know, by the time you catch it, that it's evident, it's actually usually on the decline. I mean, we're seeing this just at a well, macro well, level. I, I'll give you, I'll give you a scientific positive story about this. So we talked about Cook County earlier being an accelerant. It got bad in Cook County. They released about 1,500 prisoners over a month and a half period, about a month period, I should say, from the prison where it went from 1,500 to 5,700 uh, 5, total uh, inmates in the Cook County jail and they stopped taking in, in, intakes, or mostly taking intakes, to, um, to 4,200. The sheriff there, knowing the outbreak was bad, implemented extremely strict standards, testing everyone coming in, immediately isolating positive cases, massive use of PPE, lockdowns, meal rotation, et cetera, et cetera. This is shocking and amazing. The CDC studied what he did, 
And as a result, even though now the Cook County prison, uh, Cook County jail population is back to its pre-COVID levels, it's about 55, 5,700 people are currently incarcerated in Cook County jail, their COVID rate is lower than Chicagoland. It is lower mm. than Cook County. They so effectively solved the problem that now you are definitely safer in Cook County jail than you are walking the streets of Chicago. That, that see, this, this is this is why I tell people you have to understand politics in order to understand policy, and then vice versa. See, you come here if you just start off the debate. Oh, you know, it sounds kind of intuitive. You know, it spreads quickly in jail. But if you knew what these guys have been doing for a generation, and certainly very active the last few years, this is what they always wanted. It has nothing to do with even their well-being. You know, like you said, you would make sure they had medicine, places to go, and they clearly don't. They want the jails and prisons shut and reduced at all costs. I mean, that is what they want. And I think that ties into just the broader problem that you and I have been combating the last number of years, even before the COVID jailbreak, before the rioting. And that is, they've basically made a premise. Too many people in prison. I've had enough of it. Numbers need to be reduced. It's not a matter of let's look case by case. Hey, you know, some people aren't in jail that really do belong there. Maybe, okay, maybe if there are people that you think don't belong, let's talk about it. Let's No, it's just this arbitrary thing. And now we see that it, this whole thing was built on a lie. I, I feel that I have been pathetic the last five years. Uh, my articles have been muted. Now you might think, well, what do you mean by that? I've been really aggressive. No, I haven't been aggressive enough. I've been so busy combating the argument that we have an over-incarceration um, problem and kind of being nuanced, that this drug thing, that drug thing, here's what they else they do. The more I study this, so again, I was focused a lot on the last number of years demonstrating how a lot of the people that we arrest for drugs, they're 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 really largely not low-level people. They're big-time traffickers. They're usually gang members like Latin Kings, um, often MS-13, and they're often doing other things, which is why you lock them up. Crime goes down, as Reagan said, as we saw from the experience of the ensuing two decades. But now the more I study this at an individual case level, right, I look at all these heinous cases we see. Um, you know, New York Post has done a good art, uh, you know, a good job chronicling them. And you, you see an egregious story, whether it's someone punching a 90-year-old woman, whether it's someone trying to rape someone in broad daylight. And every single time you see it's someone with 15, in one case, is over 100 arrests. You see that there are known quantities. You see that even for straight-up murder, rape, robbery, or just like a massive, long career history, they barely get time. They don't serve time pretrial or little time. Even the places where they didn't abolish bail, it's, it's very low. They get out. Um, even if this is multiple times, even if they have, they've had murder charges, they've had outstanding warrants and parole violations, gun felonies. I'm seeing, in all honesty, this is even worse than I thought it was. And my thought is this. So you have this, there was this study from November 2012, I'm sure you're familiar with, um, that 1% of the population accounts for 63% of all violent um, crime convictions. And basically what comes out 
is that if we had a real three strikes and you're out law, a real third conviction, you're gone, you would essentially be able to prevent like 50% of all violent crime in America. We're seeing that even with the rioters, you'd think, well, maybe rioting is more nuanced. It's, you know, they get roped into Antifa, BLM. It's kind of the, you know, young idealistic people maybe. But you look into the, almost all the ones we're seeing doing the murder and the beatings and the arson. They're known career criminals that have been released that haven't been deterred. Isn't this the 800-pound gorilla in the room? I mean, what we're dealing with right now is there is three functions or four functions, I should say, of, uh, of incarceration or uh, of, uh, of, uh, of prison sentences. The first is punishment. So the notion of a just uh, uh, compensation for your crime. The next is rehabilitation. And so that's the notion that we can improve the lives of these individuals. So when they do come out after their punishment, they're better. The last two, which are where you're going, and I think you're right to talk about, are incapacitation, which is the notion that you often, and we have some research to suggest this, but again, that doesn't necessarily negate punishment or the need for reform, is to take someone out in the prime of their criminal career and put them in, behind bars is to save lives or at least mitigate other crimes that they would otherwise commit if not freed. And the fourth is an important one, and this is something that uh, Attorney General Sessions talks about and uh, others do very effectively, and that is deterrence. And the point is not to deter the individual who is actively committing a crime. It is somebody coming up in the criminal world or even tempted to think yes, about the criminal yes. world to say, wait a second, Joe Johns committed that robbery. He went away for 30 years. He ain't coming back. I'm not going to do that yes. because I believe that the police, the prosecutors, the judges, and the parole board are going to do the same thing to me. And that predictability of consequence creates a deterrent that is very powerful to yep. somebody who says, yep. oh, you know, I was breaking windows. I was doing this. I was joking around. You know, I, I got to, oh, I'm not going to step this up. It's like they use the phrase, the gateway drug of marijuana. And I can discuss, you know, whatever drug legalization, whatever. But it's, it's not the gateway to drugs. It's the gateway to serious crime when there are no consequences then people are incentivized to continue their behavior. There was an incident here in Washington, D.C. in my neighborhood that I thought was very telling. A bunch of teens, all of whom were above the age of 16, as far as I could tell, maybe they were 15, started jumping on people's cars and breaking windows and things like that. And a woman came out and said, get off the car, get off the car. It, it was her neighbor's car. And the kids then said, F you, threatened her and said, call the police, I dare you, they ain't gonna do blank. <laughs> yep. The point being was he knew there were no consequences for his behavior. That same kid and his compatriot went on a high-speed chase, or, or sort of, the cops can't really chase anyone, but eventually crashed his car uh, that, he, that they later stole um, in, in front of a police substation, and then they were <laughs> arrested. The, the police knew about the incident. They had chased the guy, but they were not allowed to continue the pursuit because of the uh, DC no pursuit laws. 
And then the guy eventually crashes the car, but crashes into a parked cruiser in front of a police substation. And then they can arrest him. <laughs> and, that and that's is exactly that's what, the, the story. No, I mean, that they believe that's the lack of the, this is the thing. Like you and I have talked about this before. You could have, let's say this guy in New York that they're talking about killed two mothers in the seventies. It could very well be that at this stage, more than kind of like the 20 something punks that have had like five years under their belt of drugs, firearms, beatings, gang. So, you know, you let those guys, I mean, you're going to have an immediate problem. A guy like that, even though on paper the conviction is for the most serious crime, I don't disagree that a good number of them, although you never know, good number of them by the time they're in the 50s, 60s, I get it that they might not commit another crime. So that's not the, that doesn't fall under the incapacitation bucket. But A, there's the justice. I mean, look, they, they should have gotten the death penalty long ago, and that's all another story. So the more they hang out there, the more the sympathy card plays up. You know, may God have mercy on your soul. I mean, that that is a very strong belief of mine. But but you're, but you're talking about the, the deterrent bucket. And that is... You start doing that enough, you lose your deterrent. And what what terrifies me is what you talked about with the with the the youth, the juvenile stuff. So the juvenile stuff is straight up. Even juvenile murder, I see in the Baltimore area, they get nothing. They get absolutely. It has shocked me. I didn't realize how bad it was. Um, straight up, like well, we we've had cases where I was focused more on the immigration ice aspect, where you'd have these MS thirteen guys that are um that were arrested for murder and you know they weren't handed over you know from PG Montgomery County to ICE and you know it was egregious then i peeled through it and i was like wait a minute it turned out one of the cases from PG 12 months prior they were arrested straight up for murder one MS13 related one of them got a little juvenile hall one of them got nothing so aside from the whole immigration issue just from a criminal justice standpoint, they got nothing. And what I'm seeing, you know, I live, you know, a couple miles from this in Baltimore. And what I'm seeing more and more is that they're getting younger and younger because the 13, 14, 15 year olds, they're seeing their older brothers. And like people like us, we're like terrified. We're going to get arrested. You know, we don't want, you know, the whole concept um, just, we, you know, we, we would never do that. But when you live the life of criminality like that and you kind of test the system, What's fascinating is it really is a joke and and they brag about it with their buddies the next day and it becomes cool. And that's that's the thought I had with that um and I'm forgetting her name that that freshman at Barnard in Manhattan who was stabbed to death by a group of like 13-year-olds last year. It's a big story I'm sure you're familiar with. And yeah. that's what almost struck me from those kids that it's like they they don't see like you will be locked up forever. They're just not seeing that. And frankly, based on what we saw with the John Weed case in Maryland, um, I had the Frederick County Sheriff on the show two weeks ago. They literally do get nothing. I mean, it's not a joke. Yeah. So I, I can't blame them. Well, well, let me Daniel, let me tell you a story that happened just in the last couple of weeks here in Washington, DC, uh related to COVID and 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 juveniles. Uh, a known gang member who is 16 years old named Matthew Mason was released from juvenile detention in March due to COVID concerns. But his prior crimes, what he was being accused of under juvenile law, were sealed. So we don't even know what he did. But let's leave that. Obviously, you go to juvenile detention in Washington, D.C. We have something called the Youth Act, which is basically pat them on the head. And, and sometimes they do restorative justice where they let the victims and the, and the perpetrator talk it out. 
which is always which is always healthy. Um, anyway, Mason then went on. Get this: over six weeks, we know we know he did this because they have evidence that we could imagine this is worse. He shot nine people in six weeks, killing four, including a pregnant woman in three different shooting incidents. One of his shootings, he, he shot four people, killing two, killing two. This is over six weeks from his release date to when he was captured in May. He shot nine people on the streets, and he's 16 years old. Now, the sad thing is, we still have the Youth Act here in D.C. He can be released as soon as 21. Jeez. And, 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 that's, and that's assuming you landed the conviction. We don't have time today to really get into depth the entire other sphere of all of the increasingly tough juggernauts in the place of a prosecution um, to, you know, to begin with, they're often undercharged and then they're under convicted and they're under sentence because down and down and down, it's so hard, even in clear cut cases. And what's so sad we're seeing now, and this is really tragic with rape victims, um, the, the jailbreak, the front end jailbreak. And I think it was you who really got me into studying the pretrial bail issue. I was focused more on the back end reduction of sentencing and I was shocked at how, these people aren't being held. I'm not talking about shoplifting. I'm talking about the most serious crimes. And so, for example, let's take this case in New York where this guy was caught literally. I mean, he would have totally raped the woman on a subway. Random woman, didn't know her, appears to have not known her. Um, so this guy is now out. So it's not just a fact of, oh, he's going to commit other crimes, which he likely will um, pre-trial. It's that... You can no longer land a proper conviction even for the original crime, and I think insidiously this is by design, because these dudes, guess what? Once they're out, well, I know where you live. And and literally they know where they live because um, in New York now you have the immediate disclosure of so this random woman, if you if, if a, you know a lot of rapes are they they know the victim, but if it's one where you didn't, so a guy grabs a woman, he doesn't know who she is and where she lives. Now he has her information. What's the likelihood that she wants to testify? I mean, this well, is becoming a, a huge couple, problem. We are, we already have a consequence about that. Actually, unfortunately, uh, in Long Island, an individual who is likely an illegal immigrant, who was a uh, I think he's Guatemalan or Honduran. Uh, testified because he was a witness to an MS-13 murder. His information about his uh, future testimony under, was pre get, was given ahead of time by the judge, assuming he was being compliant with the incoming January. This has happened in December, January uh, a discovery law change that you just you just described in New York. And he was his personal information, including his address and full name, were given to the lawyer of uh, the MS-13 guy being charged with a murder because he was a witness to the crime. Within two weeks, he was dead, killed in an MS-13 uh, murder. They killed the witness. Are you shocked that MS-13 would kill a witness? <laughs> this fellow, despite, you know, we talk about illegal immigration, put himself in jeopardy, not only the risk of MS-13, but because he was illegal, to testify, to do justice. And instead of protecting him, the state effectively signed his death warrant by doing that, and we are also seeing on the bail level, what is so terrible <laughs> is in California and New York, we've seen under their bail reforms, that 
they have defined, as I said, statutorily what a violent crime is or what a serious crime is, often so narrowly that these individuals are not uh, held on bail at all. They're automatically released yes. under the zero bail yes. edict due to coronavirus in California. Weapons offenses and raping via a drugging, like dropping a roofie in a girl's drink and raping her, is not considered a violent crime. You, you know, Sean, I have been shocked the more I study this, because I study this a lot from the legal immigration standpoint, and I would f- come across these cases with a lot of these sexual assaults and rapes. Like, they weren't like, you know... I don't know how to say this, but parsimonious thing. I mean, they were really bad, straight up things. And it's true of rape, but it's certainly true of assault and a lot of other crimes. It's so doggone hard to get first degree, right? So what happens is in a lot of these jailbreak things, they they put second degrees, third degrees, whether it's arson, uh, aggravated assault, um, sexual assault, um, and, and even murder, under like a separate bucket. Now, and most average Americans think of second and third degree in terms of like severity, but really it's hyper-technical. And often the worst criminals, like, you know, usually the worst people are not premeditated is usually, it doesn't excuse it, but I'm saying it's usually something personal. So just from a public safety standpoint, like, you know, those big murder stories on the movies, you know, it's not a guy that's just an sometimes mentally ill or, or psychotic or just crazy or violent, just on the street, just beats people and breaks their bones and kills people. It's it's a very targeted thing. Now, obviously, we believe in justice, and I'm not saying the guy shouldn't get locked up in the death penalty, but I'm saying from a public safety standpoint, it's actually those first degrees are not necessarily, I mean, they're not necessarily going to harm anyone else. Whereas a lot of these guys that we see on these videos, you know, New York Post and NYPD Post, of these people that just beat people senselessly, randomly, almost every one of those things winds up being second and third degree. So from the get-go, the threshold of incarceration or pretrial holding is so low, right? Well, it, it not only is that, you're talking about the difference between often a spontaneous attack or a, a victim of opportunity versus a premeditated or planned attack. Yeah. So somebody like this individual in the subway who raped the woman or tried to rape the woman on the subway track uh, was... Uh, clearly a case of a, uh, a victim of opportunity. But what's fascinating that's even worse than that idea of downgrading the charges, which basically allow the, the bail, is the statutory rule is you have to be able to prove the charge effectively on the uh, on, on, on case right away when you charge them. So what prosecutors often have to do just by default is charge someone with a lesser offense mm. to take them off the street. So, for example, I suspect you in a murder, but I don't got the goods on you because I have to do the ballistics and everything else, but I definitely caught you with an illegal gun, and you were definitely you know, strong-arming someone in a robbery or whatever. We have a witness. We can do it. So they charge with that. And then they upgrade the charges once they get the evidence and the testimony in or whatever. But under these bail reforms effectively you can't hold them on a charge that isn't the charge that meets the threshold so if the threshold is first degree like you're describing in new york then you cannot hold an individual longer or you can't hold them any longer for a lesser charge even though the lesser charge is really a pretext to get their ducks in a row for the stronger charge so you think you're going to track down a transient who commits a rape on the new york city subway when you get him for third degree sexual assault he's going to the wind it's it's over 
And that's what we're seeing in California. These people are not ever going to be caught or they're only going to be caught after they commit another crime. And then we're, we're left to basically pass the, vic- the new victim on the back and saying, we're sorry we didn't get around to it in time. And that's yep. the tragedy of this whole thing is that we're effectively saying, you know what, the practicality of the system, the practical compromises we make are irrelevant. So we're going to have a completely pure criminal justice system where you're charged with what you're charged with and we're going to bring the charges right away. But there are intermediate victims or intervening victims that we are basically denying justice to that shouldn't be victims. It, it, it uh, shocks me. Victims. It shocks me. And and I know th- this is a real long discussion and we're almost out of time here and we're going to have to do this another time because this is one of the linchpins to the lie of the over-incarceration. Are you kidding me? You look across almost every conviction. What we have is usually the tip of the iceberg. First of all, they do stuff we don't even catch them. Then we catch, you know, then there's things we catch them. But even initially, as you noted, we can't even charge them to the degree of what they likely did. And then it just goes downhill and downhill from there, and increasingly so with all of the holes being poked in the system, both um, administratively uh, in the court system, um, at, a, at a federal, even the Supreme Court every year pokes holes in, in the ability to land convictions in numerous ways. Um, we lose cases, and including uh, uh, conservative justices as well. And this goes on and on, and it's like, you know, for every one case you could find that you're like, yeah, I think the guy got a little bit too much. There's like 10,000 the other way. It's not the exception. It's the rule. I, I was shocked. If you look at um, BJS's data, Bureau of Justice Statistics, for average or median time served um, for serious offenses, this is as of 2016. I would love to know what it is today. People going into the system now. These are people being released in 2016. So they're going into the system largely before the real jailbreak um, velocity began. The, the, yeah. the, median, well, the median time served is 4.2 years for rape. I was floored because the, I see cases where it's nine months, a year, and I don't mean like kind of, you know, murky cases. I mean like real hardcore. I just don't get it. Well, let, well Daniel, let, let me tell you something to, to, to loop this back to, to, the, to, the, to the sentencing thing that we talked about first step back earlier. I wrote a memo uh, that drew the ire of uh, the Jared Kushner folks in the White House that I circulated. And... Um, in the memo, I refer to something in the First Step Act, which people don't understand. It's a little complicated, but I call it the Brock Turner exception. Brock Turner was the individual who raped a woman at Stanford a couple of years ago, and they end up recalling the judge, and it was a huge outrage because he got six months in prison. In the First Step Act, in order to be considered a repeat offender and therefore uh, uh, eligible for uh, mandatory minimums under the law, you have to be convicted under the under the old st- standard. You had to be convicted of a crime that would incur a one year in prison sentence imprisonment. Convicted of a crime that could incur one year. So if you committed a crime and got eleven and a half months. You still committed a crime that was eligible for five years, and therefore you qualify. They changed it to having served one year <laughs> and a day. Brock Turner got six months for a crime that could take up to 15 years, second-degree rape, and ended up serving a month. Brock Turner goes before federal tri- a federal trial tomorrow as a convicted rapist in the state of California, 
he has no priors under federal law and therefore oh, is not considered a repeat offender. And, and this is how jailbreak begets jailbreak. I call it the um, velocity of leniency because it creates a momentum, kind of the reverse momentum of what we did in the 90s. And that's what we're doing now. So the less time you serve, the less time you serve. I mean, and, and then the, the expungements and all that stuff. And it just it feeds on itself. And 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 what's sick is this stuff is by definition designed for the very people they're not talking about. They always talk about what's the trope, Sean, you know it. First time, nonviolent, low level. By definition, we're talking about high level, violent, repeat offenders. And yet it, it is so hard to get them to serve a meaningful amount of time. And it like what shocks me, this whole Me Too movement and everything, you know, where it, it kind of goes into just like criminalizing men just for existing in, in, in its most extreme agenda um, driven cases. And you have like rapes that are just like destroy a person. My view sometimes is you get the death penalty, but certainly life in prison. And they don't even get they don't get whatever more than more than a few years or and like you said, there are times where they get off. Um, and again, it's, it's, you know, that in particular is a very hard crime to, um, prove and requires a lot of pain from the victim to really go through a trial. And the, the rape conviction rate is shocking. I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with a, with a scary statistic about rape. And this actually significantly predates me too. So me too is not the explainer since California started its instituting its criminal justice reform, it came in through a Supreme Court decision about overcrowding um, and then became a, a law called AB 109 in California. And then they've subsequently done a couple more where they've reduced uh, both the total jail population and uh, reduced offenses and sentencing rules. This is shocking. In 2009, there were about 7,000 rapes in this whole state of California. And this is not including the unadjusted or adjusted rapes. These are, these are apples to apples rapes. Wait, 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 wait. To, to be careful. So I just want to, our audience is not aware of this. So just in general, the FBI has updated its definition of rape. So you're going to notice across the board over the last few years is a massive increase. You can't really use those numbers. But what you're talking about are California it's state numbers. legacy rape. The old rape definition is still being collected by the state of California on both yep. terms. So anyway, for, for both cases, for the old rape definition, the standard rape definition, and these are what most people would consider traditional rapes. They're not, you know, it's not, it's not man on man or anything like that or, or oral or anything like that. These are vaginal rapes. There were 7,000 roughly in California in 2009. In 2018, 10 years later, there were 15,000. That's a more than 110% increase. No one is talking about that. And, the, and they increased year on year, and that significantly predated a Me Too. And no one is talking about that. What is so scary is very, very few of those reported rapes. And those are people who report rapes. Most rapes are never reported, as you talked about, victim shame and all these other things. Yeah, by definition, we they, know about them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The fact, so we, it may be double, triple. Some people say it's, it's, it's six times as high, according to some estimates on the victimization rates. But even if that's the case, we see this huge increase in reported rates, and there is no feminist organization asking questions why. Why is it so high? It's barely, it, it, it doesn't even make it in the news. It's right there in the Attorney General's wow. crime report annually, and nobody notices it. That California is significant, just California, 
just California has contributed to 25 to 35 percent of all the increase in rapes over the last 10 years. <sighs> Man, you're worse and, than and me. Directly co-committing with the criminal justice reforms because these individuals are getting off and being released. And, and again, if you're the type of person to go punch someone in the face randomly on the street, to traffic drugs, to be involved in gangs, and to do all that stuff, who do you think the pool of these rapists are going to come from? It's, it, you know, it's the same type of really bad people, and it takes a certain person to do that. And as we saw with the guy on the subway, I mean, he had 14 prior arrests, because what other person would randomly just beat a woman to the ground and try to do that. I mean, that's the point. And it's just like, nobody's running with this. I can't find a Republican, a so-called conservative. I, I mean, is it that hard to stand for the silent victims of crime, victims of rape? I mean, I, I was kind of young. I'm a little bit younger than you, but I remember this is what it meant to be a Republican in the early 90s. Um, we focused on victims. It's like they don't even register. We don't even mention the word victims of crime anymore in our political lexicon. Um, truly shocking. Uh, any closing yeah, thoughts before I let you go? Yeah, my, my last closing thought is this is the, the deep irony of this whole situation that we're in now, Daniel, is the tough on crime movement, the victims' rights movement, the incapacitation movement, the good policing, Bill Bratton, Giuliani model is in and of itself, a victim of its own success. It has been so wildly successful, so wildly successful. For example, in 1993, New York City had 2,000 murders. In 2018, it had fewer than 300. That's almost a 90% decline in murders in one city that grew by 25%. And across the country, we saw similar data very effective at incapacitating these violent criminals and making the streets livable again. And because of our success, people have taken the lessons and said, now we're doing it too hard, we're too mean, and the pendulum has swung so far away from what worked to now what we know doesn't work because, you know, this is, we're reliving the 70s all over again, where there's no death penalty, there are no consequences, you need counseling, you need all these things. And the consequences are more rapes, more murders, more robberies, depolicing. And uh, we basically succeeded so much that people are taking advantage of the vacuum. Wow. No, that's that's very well said. And folks, I only plan on having Sean for the first half of the show. But look, I knew this would happen. We did the entire show together. And as you can tell, there is so much more data wealth of knowledge where that comes from. He has studied this issue for years. Sean, you're definitely invited back in the near future. Let's do a part two on this. Um, we got to start a movement for victims' rights. We got to start a victim rights uh, uh, organization. Uh, there's a lot more to do. And again, just remember, guys, this is in the backdrop of at the very same time, they are ratcheting up the rules and even arrests on everyday Americans for simply living out their life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. China on the one hand, Afghanistan on the other hand, this is the society we're going to become if we don't stand up and create a new movement. Till next week, we'll be off Monday. Not of my choice, by the way, but this is what we do at Blaze Media. Um, we should celebrate Constitution Day instead of Labor Day. Till next Tuesday, have a terrific weekend. God bless you all.